friends, countrymen, Ontarians. Welcome to the Wild Ontario Podcast, episode six. Today, we're talking to Claire Malcolmson of Rescue Lake Simcoe. Listening to this podcast, you're going to learn everything you need to know about Lake Simcoe. Um, it's once considered to be the sixth great lake. That's how big it is. Super important to Canada's uh, and Ontario's ecology, to our wildlife, um, to uh, our society, and to our economy. You'll learn all about uh, the different species found there, um, the challenges facing the lakes, including Doug Ford's uh, Holland Marsh Highway. He wants to build right through the Holland Marsh, which is arguably the best uh, agricultural land in the entire country, as well as, you know, where the Holland River flows, which is the largest, uh, you know, tributary of Lake Simcoe. So world-class perch fishery. I've gone perch fishing there multiple times in the winter with my father and uh, great lake trout and whitefish as well. If you want to know anything and everything about the state of the health of Lake Simcoe, welcome to listen to this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, with Claire Malcolmson. Enjoy. Claire Malcolmson, welcome to the uh, the Wild Ontario podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Listen, before we start anything, I'm going to ask you a very fun and silly question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And it's the following question, Claire. It also kind of, you know, tests your Ontario biology knowledge. If you had to get taken out by a predatory animal in Ontario, okay? You had to get taken out, but not just taken out, eaten alive, asshole first. What predatory animal would you choose and why? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, I don't have a canned answer for that, surprisingly. So, I mean, I, I think I would like to go for something that would sting slash kill me with poison if I am going to be eaten butt first. Um, so I think that would have to be a rattlesnake. But I don't think a rattlesnake could eat me. So I think what would happen would be I would get bitten in the butt and then I would not call for help. And then I would die. And then the vultures would would eat me. Very nice. Okay, that's very creative. I like that. I, I'd be shocked if this year, your, episode, your podcast uh, number nine here, I'd be shocked about the variety of the responses. And uh, get taken out by a rattlesnake, and then you know, being uh, scavenged is uh, is very interesting. That's that's very creative. In some, now, in some cultures, like being scavenged and being distributed by by the predatory birds is uh, is you know one of the ways you can easiest get to heaven. So if that's your thing, you might consider it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, welcome. What a what a way to start off the episode. And uh, folks, while the Ontario podcast, we talk about conservation of health, um, wildlife, and wilderness here in Ontario. We're going to be talking about uh, Lake Simcoe today. Uh, you can support the Wild Ontario podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash wildontario. And, uh, and Claire Malcolm said, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. Um, why do you care about Lake Simcoe? You run this organization called the Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition. Why do you care about Lake Simcoe and what's so good about Lake Simcoe? Isn't it just some lake? Oh, now you've got my blood boiling. Uh, all right. So, I mean, Lake Simcoe is called the jewel of Southern Ontario because it's frankly hard to miss. If you go uh, north from the GTA, you're going to be going through the Lake Simcoe watershed. So, uh, it's home to 500,000 people now. It is home to Rama First Nation, Georgina Island First Nation, uh, Williams Treaties uh, folks are there. 
Uh, it is sometimes referred to as the other Great Lake. Of course, it's nothing like as big as the other Great Lakes. It's like less than 1% of the volume of Lake Ontario, for example. But it's really nice for recreation. It's really nice for swimming um, because it does it. It's not as cold as the Great Lakes. Uh, it's the most intensively fished lake in Ontario, and it is the ice fishing capital of North America. So there are some fast stats for you. Um, but in terms of you know why I uh, am paid badly and have been for twenty years to protect Lake Simcoe. Uh, you have to love a place if you're going to uh, be a professional environmental advocate for it. And so for me, you know, I'm, everybody has their reason for loving a place and their story and and that's all good. Uh, for me, I, I grew up cottaging there. My family's had land in Innisfil since 1889. And since the 70s, uh, we started working with the Ministry of Natural Resources in Ontario to to basically come up with a plan for how to restore what turns out is a, an oak pine savanna, culturally modified site, uh, uh, which is there because of former First Nations uh, occupation and use of the land. And so that's an ANSI, an area of natural scientific interest. So, you know, it's been really amazing for me to watch my relatives and my very extended family, uh, you know, take care of this property and learn more about it as uh, as we go through many generations of, of stewarding the property. So it's really the place where I, you know, played manhunt at night with flashlight crawling on my belly in the forest and getting poison ivy. Uh, it's, a, it's that I learned to swim. It's where I learned to paddle. Uh, so there, there are just tons of memories and good times. And for that fun, you know, you notice what's going on and Eventually, members of us were like, huh, what's happening with Lake Simcoe? Seems maybe not so good. Um, and that, frankly, that just began my journey. Wow. That's really crazy. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I came across your uh, Instagram page for, uh, you know, Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition and so much interesting information on there. You know, me, I uh, first went to Lake Simcoe for ice fishing, like you just mentioned, with my father. And when I was a little kid and just giant perch, you know, I remember from reading all the different fishing magazines, it's like Lake Simcoe is known as one of, if not the best place for yellow perch in the entire continent. They call them jumbos, right? Like fish jumbos, jumbos yeah. perch that are, you know, 12 inches or bigger. And fishing with my father, we literally caught probably 50 fish. We had to release most of them because they were, you know, we were over our limit for the day. And, um, it's an astounding place. And like you said, also, you know, you hear, you hear the lore about Lake, Lake Simcoe, I think also along with uh, Lake Nipigon was once considered, you know, should we include this in the Great Lakes or not? Because there are these massive lakes. It's not just any other lake, you know. In you can't see across, right? Like I, I'm down in Cook's Bay. You can see the other side of the bay. There's Keswick over there. But if I look north, you just can't, you can't see the other side. It's really big. So that's a good thing. And also a bad thing, right? Because it's actually a huge geography. Uh, and so our coalition tries to represent all the different cottager groups and associations and residents associations and some environmental groups in the watershed that are concerned about the lake. Um, it's actually a bit hard for us to get together because uh, the lake is in the way. Very, you know, it can take hours to get from place to place. So 
um, you know, COVID and uh, this Zoom internet uh, innovation has actually made things a little bit easier for people to get together. And so I, you know, I, I just want to put that out there because I know there are a lot of people who love Lake Simcoe and maybe they're getting stressed out about it and they want to channel that stress and anxiety into doing something good and fun and productive and they should join us. Right on. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, it is such a huge place. I remember I've had to drive around Lake Simcoe a few times and that's when you really get a sense for how big it is. I also forgot to mention my uncle has a property that is in Eudora, which is a little hamlet, if you know where that is. Yep. And literally right at the back of his property, there's this creek called Pefferlaw Creek that flows through there. And I've gone on a number of hikes back there with him and his dog. And Pefferlaw Creek is like the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. It's just magical, right? This super clear water, super sandy, you know, bottom of the creek, just beautiful vegetation everywhere. You see runs of fish at certain times of the year to spawn. I think a lot of fish come up from Lake Simcoe to spawn in Pefferlaw Creek. And uh, you really get a sense for how magical, you know, the place is. That's another reason why I care so much about Lake Simcoe, uh, you know, personally. Um, but speaking of rivers, um, maybe I should frame it from this this perspective, actually. Lake Simcoe is this magical place, huge lake, very important. Also interesting stat, I think you said the recreational economy of Lake Simcoe is $420 million a year. Is that yep. correct? Yeah, no. that's right. Huge figure, uh, cottagers, um, tourists, uh, sightseers, swimmers, fisher, fisher people, all these kind of things. Um, how is the general health of Lake Simcoe right now? Like what grade from F to A would you give it? Um, what's the state of the lake in the year 2023? Uh, great question. I mean, I'd give it a C because it's still swimmable. Uh, you know, we this is not a toxic lake and hopefully it never is. Um, but, you know, it's not really in my interest to oversell the lake. My job is to protect it. And so that means I have to be honest. I don't get any money from developers. Uh, I don't get money from government. So I'm just the straight goods. And so it's okay. You know, a C, you're like, you can do better, but you're not fit. You're, you give Lake Simcoe a C. You're not trying to oversell it. You're not a, you know, a tourism manager. So yeah. why is it a C that say? Okay. I give Lake Simcoe a C grade because I think it's really important that we kind of know the path that we're on. Um, so the good news is the remediation actions that governments pay for, uh, that the Conservation Authority and Foundation work on, that the Ministry of the Environment and Municipalities deliver on, these things really help. Uh, we have brought our phosphorus loads down over time from a peak in the 80s but the low-hanging fruit has been picked right so all of the sewage systems there are 14 different sewage systems that drain into lake simcoe uh they are very advanced for the most part there are still a few you know horrible like spray irrigation system up in romera that the mayor keeps defend defending they're trying to they're trying to replace it but oh my gosh they're taking their time um so you know, we've we've done that. We have fenced the cattles out of streams. We have um, done a lot of the very relatively easy work to remove phosphorus from going into the lake. 
Um, but we still are way above the target. So um, the problem with phosphorus is that it leads to poor water quality for recreation because it helps stimulate the growth of weeds and plants. And so if you're, for example, water skiing uh, and then you <laughs> fall off and then you're in the middle of the lake and you're like, like that's the kind of thing that got really bad in the 80s uh, and through the 90s. And it's a little bit less bad now, but just as an indication of what phosphorus does to sort of the average user. Uh, but also much more significantly, it contributes to algae blooms and it contributes to, you know, proliferation of, uh, of, of weeds generally in the aquatic environment. And when they die and decompose, that process consumes oxygen. And that is a problem for fish because, of course, as we all know, fish breathe through their gills and they just don't have a choice. They can't just come up and like take a big gulp of air, right? So uh, that is why, you know, we look at the health of the lake trim, the white fish to indicate how the lake is doing. They have specific ecosystem needs and they change uh, sort of the depth of the lake that they occupy changes over the course of the year. And so, so does the oxygen level change with the depth of the lake over the course of the year. And so when there's a mismatch, those fish get out of their preferred strata of the lake and they go into a place where actually they're predated, they're eaten by other other guys in the lake more often. And so if you just look at the health of the lake trout and the whitefish, uh, that's C or a D or maybe even an F, like their numbers are going down. And as our First Nations friends very wisely always remind us, we really need to look to nature to try to determine how it's doing. So it's not enough to just look at the numbers and say, way to go, Ministry of the Environment. You put out a report that, you know, shared some facts that you handpicked that are the good ones. You also need to look at what nature is telling us, as I'm sure is 100%, you know, your wheelhouse there, James. Um, so yeah, so Lake Trotter telling us the lake is not doing great. And I know, because I do have a crystal ball, what is coming down the pipe. And what is coming down the pipe is this horrendous sprawl agenda, which we had been raining back in Ontario for, you know, my entire career. We've been pulling back on the terrible impact of sprawl. Now we know the impact of sprawl. Um, but the government currently is just like, yeah, sprawl. So that's really bad for the lake because it adds more dirt, which contains phosphorus. Um, and so it adds to that phosphorus block problem and the meat growth and oxygen issue that I described. Uh, it also, I mean, there's a whole lot of other things we can talk about sprawl, but that is actually the main growing source of phosphorus pollution for Lake Simcoe. And if we don't get a handle on that, uh, things will definitely get worse. Very interesting. Yeah, that's really concerning to hear because, you know, lake trout is literally my favorite fish in Ontario. I think they're so magnificent. Um, and there's a huge, I would say that lake trout and, and whitefish, the two species you just mentioned, are probably equally important in terms of the fishery on Lake Simcoe to yellow perch. Um, there's a huge amount of people, a number of my friends who I follow, they go fishing all the time for lake trout and uh, and whitefish on, on Lake Simcoe. And uh, it's a pretty epic fishery. So the fact that those those guys are not doing well is definitely concerning. And that whole phosphorus thing and how that causes, you know, depletion in oxygen and overblooms and, you know, all kinds of aquatic vegetation, but especially the algae. It's a, it's a really serious problem. Uh, you know, EnviroDefense got me to help share their campaign for Lake Erie. And Lake Erie's been dealing with phosphorus problems for a very long period of time. 
And that causes enormous havoc down in Lake Erie, where essentially sometimes, some years, like a third of Lake Erie is unswimmable and it's undrinkable. Like it is an enormous, enormous problem. You said there's 500,000 people, homo sapiens, that are kind of living in and around Lake Simcoe now. And uh, that's very, very concerning for, you know, all the species, including us that, uh, that live around the lake. There was a really crazy uh, interview I heard recently on an environmental podcast with a fellow who was from the U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers, just recently retired. And they were looking at the phosphorus loads going into Lake Erie are actually starting to trend down, but the outbreaks are still kind of at the same level. And one of the create this is something maybe for you to you guys to look into about Lake Simcoe. What they're finding is the amount of glyphosate, which is the most common herbicide used in agriculture on the continent, the amount of glyphosate going into the lake is going drastically up. They said there's something about um, the minerals in the soil have become saturated because glyphosate, I think, originally was invented as a chelator, right, to take minerals out of piping in air conditioning units. And they also discovered that it also kills all other biotic life when it get when it touches it, right? <laughs> so uh, it, it's a crazy chemical. But what they're finding is like in Ohio um, and Pennsylvania, the soils there have become saturated in terms of all the minerals have already bound to these glyphosate molecules. And now the amount of glyphosate in the runoff into the lake is spiking way up because glyphosate has only been applied, right, for about, I guess it's been around since 96, 97 is when it first went into widespread use. So that might be something to keep an eye out on Lake Simcoe is, is the are the glyphosate le levels spiking? Has the soil in and around Lake Sim Simcoe, you know, been saturated? Um, so, you know, that's, I think that's an interesting question we need to keep uh, keep an eye on that could exacerbate that issues. Um, other than phosphorus, um, if we're talking about other issues in terms of shoreline habitat, if we're talking about invasive species, if we're talking about heavy metals, um, are there any other big things that are, and we'll get into the highway and the sprawl thing in a second, but are there any other big things other than the phosphorus issue that are are concerning you about Lake Simcoe right now? Well, salt, but that is related to sprawl on the highway, so we will talk about that. Uh, that is uh, definitely uh, a really bad not even emerging anymore, but it's a really bad friend. Um, but the other thing, you know, and I, everybody can relate to this. I mean, it's natural areas. Um, so one of the things the Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition did uh, that we're really proud of, partnered with Environmental Defense and Ontario Nature to run a campaign, which actually I was the campaign manager for at Environmental Defense, uh, to get the Lake Simcoe Protection Act and plan in 2008. And there was this very impressive team of scientists that informed the entire debate and provided the information uh, so that it would be science-based and defensible. Uh, a little bit of a sidebar, you know, to, to today, right, where the province of Ontario is saying, oh, the Green Belt is a scam. Okay, just, just Premier Ford, maybe in all the cabinet. But they have said the Green Belt is a scam. It's really important that we're able to say these plans are not a scam. These plans are based on science, right? So certainly with the Lakes of Protection Act and plan, um, this target for phosphorus that we talked about and a target for the amount of natural areas you should have, these are based on, on scientists' 
recommendations based on their field of study and their and uh, and their research. So at Lake Simcoe, we should have about forty percent of the watershed in what they call high quality natural cover, and they defined that and they analyzed lots of areas. And although we have you know fifty to sixty percent of the watershed in some form of natural cover. Um, the government of Ontario right now is stripping away a lot of those protections. So we will lose natural cover. And that's really bad because the other, of course, um, I mean, nature, all the all the little critters, they need their natural habitat. That's fairly obvious. We all like recreating and fishing. This helps contribute to that $420 million a year sustainable recreation number. Um but also with climate change and climate change impacts, it's really important that we hold on to all the natural features that exist on the landscape right now, instead of believing in some freaking fantasy fiction where you can pick up a watershed and put it somewhere else because the developer wants to. You know, it's just like, no, we just need to protect the watersheds. We need to, sorry, we need to protect the wetlands where they are on the landscape uh, to slow down the water going into the lake, to absorb the pollution, to hold on to that extra water when you have flooding events because we now know that phosphorus loads are driven by major precipitation events. So where you've got, especially in winter now, and you have these huge melt events, you've got a ton of water just flushing across the landscape really fast, uh, it can't get absorbed very easily. And so it just runs into the lake. And so the more natural areas we have on the landscape that are intact, that are functional, that can absorb that water, the less phosphorus will rush quickly off into the lake in those major storm events. Right. Very interesting. So do you know any kind of breakdown in terms of, so this incremental, you could call it non-natural uh, phosphorus input into Lake Simcoe that's above and beyond the natural stuff that would be going in? Do you have any idea how much of that is from ag versus like septic tank and, you know, other human related um, inputs? Like, do you, do you have any idea? Well, yeah, I mean, actually, we worked really effectively with um, the, the previous provincial government. Um, it was a year of sitting around a table with multi-stakeholders to get them to take action through the Lake Simcoe Protection Act and plan and to analyze the information in a way that was actually helpful, that was going to be able to have us track back. So about, I mean, it is hard to say with agriculture because it's what's called a non-point source of pollution. It's really distributed across the landscape. You, there's no pipe that you can measure, right? So uh, at first they just said, oh, it's the tributaries. The tributaries contribute like 40% of the load or 60% of the load. We made them uh, focus those numbers in a lot over. So agriculture probably contributes around 25 to 40% of the phosphorus load. Uh, again, that depends on rain and precipitation levels. It depends on the year. It depends on the landscape, what type of soils. So it's really not, not all farmers are the same and not all farm plots are the same. Um, one of the things that has happened, I should give some credit where credit is due, is uh, that the federal government uh, a few years ago promised about $17 million to build a phosphorus recycling plant 
on the Holland River in the south end of the watershed in order to clean up the water that is around the Holland Marsh. So as people probably know, the Holland Marsh is the breadbasket, the food basket of Ontario, right? It produces like an astonishing percentage of our onions, carrots, celery, et cetera, like 80% or something like that. So um, we need that. We need the farmers. We need the farmers need to do what the farmers need to do to grow our food. Um, but it does result in some some pollution. And I'm not trying to insult the farmers by saying that. They're, they're a little sensitive about that. But me, we need food, right? So now the government of Ontario has, has said that they too are going to contribute money to this process. And then they've told York Region uh, to build it. Um, I hope that the chair of York Region, who's also the chair of the Conservation Authority, will take pleasure in that exercise uh, because it's really important for Lake Simcoe and uh, and it's his job. Wow. So um, are they, what, what's being done with that $17 million? So they're going to build a plant on the Holland River. Maybe also just interject here, in terms of the major water input sources into Lake Simcoe, um, there's the Holland River. There's the Pepperlock Creek that runs through Eudora where my uncle lives. Um, a lot of the, I think people don't realize the Oak Ridges Moraine, which is protected, protected by the Oak Ridges Moraine you know, Act, uh, I think that was back in like 2000 under yeah. Mike Harris, Premier Mike Harris. Um, all, all the rivers that flow to the north out of that, a lot of them go into Lake Simcoe. So a lot of the ones that go to the south go into Lake Ontario, and it was protected by Conservative Premier Mike Harris because they realized like, geez, this is the thing that's filtering and maintain the quality of all of our drinking water for the city of Toronto. But it's not just for Toronto. All the folks that depend on Lake Simcoe, all these rivers flowing out of um, the Oak Ridges Marine there also flow to the north. So other than the Holland, like is the Holland River the biggest and most important tributary going into Lake Simcoe? It is, yeah. But then there's also, you know, the Black River uh, just to the east, which which comes out at uh, Sutton, which is also beautiful. It paddled that river. Um and then, uh, you know, there's the Pepperlaw Creek. Um, and then the creeks get less interesting and impressive on the west side. The, sh- the watershed is actually quite like the watershed boundary. The sort of height of land is actually pretty close to the lake on the west side. Um, I've paddled uh, a couple of creeks in Innisfil as well, um, which really they sort of meander through um, farmland and they really need a whole lot more natural cover protection. So, you know, just picking up on the natural cover and the sort of what is the landscape, things that we that we can do and should do and and that our money should be used for. Uh, we need to better shade the shoreline and those rivers and creeks because the fish uh, are not comfortable in the temperatures that are that are increasing in the water because of climate change. And it really affects their ability to reproduce. Um, we need to reduce the amount of silt and runoff that ends up in those rivers too. Also, to protect the you know small aquatic organisms like the mayflies and the fish eggs that are in those rivers as well. Um, if you have too much silt, and that is primarily from uh, development and from farming, that can smother those uh, those eggs and stuff too. So, the, what happens on the creeks that run into the lake? is really important. Uh, so then moving up to the north, there are um, some beautiful creeks that come through Oromodonte, uh, like Hawkstone, the Hawkstone River has 
the highest water quality of any of the creeks around Lake Simcoe. And you can see a pretty clear relationship between high levels of natural cover in the sub-watershed around a river and its high water quality. And there's a very direct relationship. So anywhere we want to have better water quality, uh, we really do need to increase the amount of natural cover. Uh, one of the really sad rivers of Lake Simcoe is the Maskinon River, and that is uh, in Georgina. And, um, you know, just a little story. So when I started, I started this work in 2001. Uh, I created a program called Paddling Around Lake Simcoe uh, because I'd been a paddling guide. That was my job as a canoeing and sea kayaking guide on the West Coast. And I loved paddling and taking people out, but I was like, I want to be able to save this, right? I don't want to just be like, isn't it nice? Let's have a great day. So um, I created this program. I took this idea to the Conservation Authority and I was all, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And I'm like, this, this is going to be great. It's going to work. And they were like, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's do it. So, you know, they got huge amounts of media. We went all around. We did all these restoration programs. We had all these parties and we did skits and fantastic good times. Um, and that is how my career started. And it's also how a lot of the people that are still active and, the, and actually the people who created the Rescue Lake Selco Coalition started to realize that actually we had a problem around the entire lake and that it wasn't just, for example, their local river. So the best story from that was going up the Maskinon River with some, uh, some people who are in that area in Keswick in the Northern York region. And, um, and so we went paddling up the river and then we couldn't get any further. We were stuck in the duckweed. Like we were literally unable to move further upstream because it was so choked with weeds. And so people were sort of picking up these clumps of weeds and like, wow, you know, and, and realizing this is what happens when you don't have enough flow going through a river uh, because a lot of the flow has been taken up by farming upstream. Um, and also when you have a lot too much fertilizer, the phosphorus and nitrogen issue, and probably something to do with the soils. Uh, there's a ton of sod farming in that sub-watershed too, and that is notoriously hard on the environment. Um, don't grow grass if you can avoid it. <laughs> and uh, don't buy sod. I have like a really, really unattractive example in my backyard of if you want to grow grass, I have a couple little boys. They play soccer. They they do need some grass. So we're just throwing grass seed <laughs> day after day after day. Anyway, we don't buy sod. So don't don't get sod. It's bad for the environment. Uh anyway, so there's sort of a little bit of a tour of some of the rivers and uh, you know, how being in the environment can can help people realize what's going on. Like, oh, I can see because my boat can't go any further that, you know, too many fertilizers in the lake creates this this kind of problem. So Luckily, that kind of awareness uh, in that moment led to the creation of the Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition. And I didn't even do it. Um, and then that spun off into a group called the Ladies of the Lake uh, that were really uh, great on media and very fun and bubbly, raised a lot of money and helped our campaign to get the Lake Simcoe Protection Act and plant. And that is what a little paddling journey can do wow oh my god that's so cool that's a great story about how the uh, you know all of this started and you know the importance of the arteries that feed into a lake because oftentimes people think about a lake and it's just 
you know, the lake itself, but all the arteries, all the watersheds feeding in are critical to the health of the lake um, in a big way. And, you know, your point about, I guess maybe biologists would call this riparian habitat, which essentially means the habitat in and around the shorelines of any body of water, creek, river, lake, um, the vegetation that's there, it's really important. And when people pave over or cut down or replace this kind of habitat with grass or rock or other kind of landscaping, it can have an enormous effect on the health of these rivers. And one of the things is, is all of these things, you know, phosphorus, salt, even a lot of other concerning, you know, man-made chemicals, um, they don't get filtered out or don't have the, um, opportunity to be stopped and then essentially filtered out by this vegetation um, that's along the side of these uh, these these waterways. And the vegetation itself is obviously, you know, habitat for so many different kinds of critters. It shades the water, as you say, you say keeping it cool. Um, it's very important to, to have that. One of the big reasons that uh, the Atlantic salmon went extinct in Lake uh, Ontario is because all of the riparian vegetation was cut down on those big rivers and creeks flowing into Lake Simcoe. And it destroyed their, their spawning habitat, you know, so that's really important. It's concerning what you're saying that a lot of the protections for this kind of riparian habitat and vegetation are being uh, stripped away by the current government um, or the emphasis on protecting them. And, you know, it also brings into mind human health. There was a very concerning story on CTV recently that uh, I forget where the, the researcher was out of, but they were looking at the effect of uh, environmental toxins on rainbow darters, which is a kind of small kind of creek and riverine, you know, fish here in Ontario. And they were looking at things like human birth control and I think a few other chemicals that were greatly affecting the reproductive capacity of the rainbow darters. A huge percentage of them, and I forget what creek this was, but it was in southern Ontario, a huge percentage of these rainbow darters were literally becoming sterilized because of these human chemicals or the males were changing into female and the females were changing into males, but they were sterilized. They, they weren't able to reproduce. And one of the really crazy things uh, with our you know, filtration um, and water treatment systems is people don't realize like that's designed to handle the big components, like the, the waste, you know, ammonia, nitrates, you know, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to these tiny molecules, heavy metals, birth control, all different kinds of pharmaceutical drugs, um, they don't filter any of those things out. And the most interesting phrase that I've ever heard in environmental toxicology is the solution to pollution is dilution. So the reason that this ties back to this riparian habitat and, you know, for example, Mike Harris protecting the Oak Ridge's moraine and the importance of the green belt is all of these wetlands, this riparian vegetation, these are all things that help to intercept these chemicals and to help break them down and neutralize them in natural ways. Because all of our treatment plants, including the brand new multi-hundred million dollar treatment plant down here in Toronto on Ashbridge's Bay that was, you know, started by up by, uh, by John Tory, that plant, even though it's got the most modern technology we have, will not be taking any of these man-made chemicals out of the water at all. So if you're protecting yeah. all the wildlife, including human life, from these kind of chemicals, we really need to rely on these natural systems, our wetlands, the riparian habitat. Um, and if we start clearing these things out, the concentration, as the human population expands, uh, the concentration of these environmental toxins is going to continue to increase, and all of us are really going to suffer for that. So. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the First Nations at Lake Simcoe have taught me so much. Uh, and I think that this is part of what, you know, we, like, as a culture, we need to listen to these people and their teachings because uh, they survived on the landscape in pretty good harmony with each other and with nature for a really long time. And they have a lot to teach us in terms of the philosophy and the way of being and the way of seeing that um, will allow us to survive, frankly. So they say what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. And that's pretty much what you've just said. And um, they were at the forefront, Georgina Island First Nation was at the forefront of opposing the um, Upper York sewage system. So this was proposed uh, in the 90s, first of all, to go south across the Oak Ridge's Moraine um, into Lake Ontario at uh, Duffins Creek in Durham. And then we got the Lake Simcoe Protection Act passed, and it says no new sewage treatment plants can be built on Lake Simcoe. One, because we are trying to bring down phosphorus levels and just trying to answer a previous question of yours about, well, it used to be about 6%, you know, 15 years ago. Now it's only about 3% of the total phosphorus load comes from sewage treatment plants. Uh, we are able to reduce the load with technology and with money. So only 3% now comes from sewage treatment plants. That's great. But because we're trying to bring it down, there was a cap. So we were really surprised when then the government of Ontario said, hey, we have an idea. Let's not put the stuff in Duffins Creek. Let's put it in Lake Simcoe. We're like, what the hell? You just passed a law that says you can't do that. Why are you proposing this? So really, it was driven by developers, developers influence, governments of all stripes. Uh, and so, you know, York Regional sort of took this up like, OK, fine. You want us to look at how to discharge into Lake Simcoe? So they spent hundred million dollars looking at how you know the greatest technology in the world to be able to clean all this up and we can just go ahead and build all over upper york region and georgina island first nation was like hey guys as you just said james these sewage treatment plants do not remove all the pharmaceuticals and all the chemicals we live in lake simcoe p.s you put us here we used to be able to be everywhere now we have this reserve or on an island it's surrounded by lake simcoe like uh, what do you think we're gonna do what are we gonna drink so uh they made the case we supported them you know like myself like friend jack from uh lake simcoe watch talked to the the committee the panel that was looking at where to put this sewage so thankfully this government the current ontario government um said no we're not going to discharge the sewage into lake simcoe um, so I'm grateful for that. It's important that we use the best filtration systems that we can, um, and that hopefully the technology will continue to evolve and that someday maybe we can filter these contaminants out of the water. But for now, we do need to recognize that there are actually limits to growth. And I think like Simcoe really is that poster child for us in Southern Ontario. You can see Remember, we went back to, we have a C grade. There's room for improvement, but we are not dead. So let's actually learn from all the science that we have. I mean, there is no lake that has been more intensively studied than Lake Simcoe. 
not a lack of information or understanding or science. It's just, are we actually going to build sustainably? Are we going to plan to put new people uh, or just whatever? Are we going to plan to put more population uh, in a watershed that is already kind of teetering on the edge of health? Or are we going to try our hardest to put people within existing communities where we already have the infrastructure, where we can also minimize the footprint, the, the amount of land um, that new homes uh, take up? And that is what we're trying to do. That's what the environmental organizations across Southern Ontario are trying to explain again to the government of Ontario right now. Like, stop sprawl. Don't be dumb. Don't wreck our lakes and rivers. Stop pretending that building on the green belt and sprawl is good. It's not. It's not good. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, right on, right on. Well, you know, another concerning thing about a lot of these environmental toxins is that their effects are oftentimes not linear. Like you will reach a certain level of critical mass where it then becomes very problematic. And we don't really know when those where those critical mass masses are, right? In terms of its concentration in the water column, in terms of its effect on fish, as well as human life. And we could be in a situation where maybe five years from now, you know, the concentration of, for example, uh, human birth control, all of a sudden is a huge problem. And then maybe all the fish in Pepperlaw Creek, like we don't know, right? All the fish in Pepperlaw Creek, all of a sudden they can't reproduce. It's like, because that concentration is past, past that critical threshold and uh, it's, it's, it's a major problem. So yeah, the riparian, you know, habitat, vegetation, sprawl, proper filtration technology. It's just so frustrating because it appears we don't have that filtration technology right now, which is why these natural systems, you know, are, are triply important. I use an activated, I believe it's carbon or charcoal filter um, in my home, which does neutralize those things. But I don't know if that kind of technology on the industrial scale, the municipal filtration scale is possible to run all water through that kind of thing. I guess reverse osmosis uh, reverse osmosis systems will also work. But again, I don't know if that's uh, you know financially viable right now. So it's, it's really, really concerning. Um, so let's talk about fluoride, salt for a second. And maybe you could also lead that into the situation with the Holland Marsh Highway. Yes, Doug Ford wants to build a highway through the Holland Marsh. Not a great idea. He's called the Bradford Bypass. Thank you to his marketing gurus because he knows that everybody would oppose a highway if it was called the Holland Marsh Highway. And, uh, you know, Highway 413, I guess with Lake Simcoe, though, maybe the Holland Marsh Highway is the most concerning. But yeah, talk about chloride. What's the situa situation with salt? And then uh, what are you concerned about with these highways? So, yeah, that salt uh, was identified as a contaminant of emerging concern back in 2008 by the science committee that I was talking about earlier that informed the creation of the Lake Simcoe Protection Act and plan. So we have known about this problem now. That's now 15 years ago. Um, we've known about it for a long time. Um, and so we're on a trajectory right now. At 37 years, the entire lake would be at a at a chronic uh, salt level, which in short is just like extremely bad for aquatic organisms. Um, I just want to start off by dispelling any myth that people may believe that these organisms can just adapt to salt. They can't 
They can't just adapt to salt like freshwater organisms or freshwater organisms. There are um, some salt water crabs that apparently are living in Mimico Creek in uh, the Mississauga area because that environment is so salty. But it's not the other way around. It's not like the freshwater organisms will survive in a in an intensively salty uh, <laughs> piece of water. Anyway, so I just wanted to put that out there. So we're, yeah, we're really concerned about salt. I mean, mostly it comes from roads and parking lots. Uh, what people put on their sidewalks and their unpersonal driveways, that matters. But it it's really just a fraction of the problem. So this is something that... Uh, I'm looking at quite a lot right now uh, because the Bradford Bypass Highway, it's a proposed 16-kilometer highway that would connect Highway 404 to Highway 400, about half a concession road north of Bradford. And that is in, it would go from York Region in the east to Simcoe County in the west. Um, this was proposed in the 70s. And remember in the 70s, it was just like, yeehaw, guns a blazing, let's go fishing. So, like, there was no real environmental consciousness. I don't think people were concerned that much about the health of Lake Simcoe at that point. Salt was not really an issue. Anyway, long story short, the plan has not changed since since those times. Um, yeah, so it was a bad plan then, and it is even worse now because we know better so one of the issues with this highway is that it will then spew salt into the east and west holland rivers which um flow north into lake simcoe east holland river is already above the chronic salt level for most of the year like winter spring summer fall uh it is it is choked with salt so there is no indication that that river can handle more chloride uh, that's also not too far from Georgina Island First Nation. They're really, really just above Cooks Bay, just a bit hooked hook to the right over <laughs> past Cooks Bay. Um, so we're concerned about the salt impacts. Uh, the other problem is that it goes over, you know, something like 18 hectares of uh, forest and wetland habitat and would wipe it out. Um, it's an elevated highway they don't have engineered designs okay so this is such lunacy like i need people to understand how how incredibly stupid this plan is so the government has basically said we're gonna put it here because our motto is get it done we're gonna put it here regardless of anything any of the studies tell us so we've been reading their studies um studies don't save the environment studies just tell you stuff studies in the absence of rules and enforcement are maybe you want to just call that red tape i don't know but i would say it is a diversion from actually doing anything useful i know that people of all political stripes like Lake Simcoe. And so this is not a partisan thing. I think people expect that our government is going to actually act responsibly. I, I think this is a pretty good time to remind people that 
We have a lot of evidence that this government's not acting responsibly and that they're like process schmoses, right? They don't like process. They don't care about process. The Bradford bypass so-called process has been an absolute joke. There is, so basically they said, we are going to bypass the whole environmental assessment process because there was a conditional approval in 1997. Uh, yeah. So the conditional approval had conditions and they really don't even have to meet the conditions anymore other than um, putting together a groundwater protection plan. But I've read the groundwater protection plan and the groundwater protection plan is when we get to the detailed design, we'll figure this out. And if your well is affected, we'll bring one of those boxes of water for you and then you can fix your well. Like that is their plan. Yeah. So we, we distributed these postcards this summer to people along the route uh, whose wells we thought might be affected because we thought they might want to know um, that the, the plan is, oops, sorry, we know this is going to affect wells during the construction phase. We have a lot of worries about it. So we're just going to kind of give you some water. Good luck. Um, I don't think that's adequate. Uh, anyway, one of the things that our... our um, the person who's distributing these these flyers found out they went to somebody's property that person says yeah they've been uh they've been digging beside my property for a while and they're trying to figure out where they're going to put these very long um supports that would hold up the bridge because it would be an elevated structure the guy who was digging said i'm 200 feet down and i haven't hit solid ground yet so I don't know where or how they're going to build this thing. Right. So isn't that reassuring? Oh, great. Let's spend $4 billion on a highway that we're not really sure is going to stand up. <laughs> it's going right? to bedrock, eh? It has, like, the, the, the beams have to go under bedrock. It would be real. I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an engineer. I don't know how you build a bridge, but I would think that you need to put the piles on something solid. And I, and I gathered that that's construction guys saying too, like, we don't, what are you going to build this on? So it's just not okay to say, we want to put a highway here because uh, almost 50 years ago, like, I mean, 30 years ago, we thought this is a good idea. Uh, and, uh, and because we thought it was a good idea, then we're going to do it here now. Like it, it, it's 2023, we're in a climate crisis. Our rivers are in trouble. We need to do everything we can to build sustainably for a, a happy and sustainable future. And so building a highway over um, some portion of the Holland Marsh and agricultural land, ripping up a whole bunch of natural areas, which have a lot of um, birds, for example, and fish habitat uh, in it, bad for lakes of go, then they don't have the proper studies in place to demonstrate that this is actually going to work, that it's actually feasible to, to, to build this thing on a reasonable budget. But my last thing here, and then I, I'll stop my rant and you can ask a question, but the last thing is, you know, an environmental assessment is supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be based on a demonstration of need and a justification. And because the government of Ontario under Doug Ford has said, we aren't really doing a normal EA. They've actually um, 
they've exempted themselves from doing an environmental assessment for this for this project, right? They don't have to provide the need and justification anymore because they changed the rules so that they don't really have to provide the need and justification. So we have Rescue Leaks of Coalition has a petition up on our website under Take Action, which is asking the Ministry of Transportation to release the traffic studies. They won't release the traffic studies. We don't know what the so-called time savings are for who, right? Like, what? We're going to spend up to $4 billion on a highway without knowing the traffic implications, without knowing if it's actually cost-effective, without knowing whether they haven't, they haven't factored in, like, the new GOAT train and go train potential. I mean, we don't really know what the traffic studies are based on. If this is such a shit hot idea, why are they not releasing the traffic studies? That's a basic question anybody can understand and anybody can ask their MPP. So if you want to just get on the phone and kvetch to somebody about something, I would suggest this is a really good topic. Like, hey, MPP, do you have any idea how we're going to build the Bradford Bypass? or whether it's going to affect like Simcoe? The answer to those questions is no. If they give you any other answer, they're just like, blah, 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 towing the party line. Right, right. Yeah, that that's super, super concerning. You know, shit hot idea. I haven't heard that term in a long time, but I love that phrase. Shit and hot are two things you don't generally want, but I understand what you're saying. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, it's so concerning because you you talk about the all of Lake Simcoe and I think the people that live around it, they live there for so many of them. So much of the economy is based on recreation, right? Whether you're cottagers, you live there for the natural beauty, tourists going to fish, going to boat. There's giant developments, you know, like Friday Harbor that's all about come live on Lake Simcoe. That's a whole other discussion. And that's a pretty grotesque development in my in my perspective. Um, but Literally all of the economy and society and everything in Lake Simcoe is reliant on the health and the productivity of the lake and its surrounding water bodies. So this highway, this Bradford bypass, that they don't even have the data on what is the time saving going to be. Um, it's like, do you really want to risk, especially the, those two branches, the Holland River there, that are already at almost year round critical levels past the critical threshold for salt Um you know, contamination. Do you want to further risk? And that's the biggest input to Lake Simcoe. Do you really want to gamble the health of the entire lake um, and the entire economy that depends on it over this one highway? It doesn't sound like a gamble that's worthwhile, especially considering how much the highway might cost and the fact that you even have any of this data. It sounds actually like a completely fucking insane idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. And all the data around the transportation savings time on this other highway that Doug Ford wants to build, Highway 413, right? Under the previous government that looked at this uh, this opportunity to build Highway 413, the estimated time saving, I think from the third-party engineering firm, was it would save about 60 seconds in terms of traffic improvement in that entire area. Yeah. So it totally didn't make sense to invest $10 billion for Highway 413, right? Which would be connecting somewhere up in King City on the 400 and down at uh, the 4401 near Milton, it totally doesn't make any sense from an ROI perspective. So the Bradford bypass, it's going to cost this much money. We don't even know what the net positives of it are from an infrastructure perspective. And it's putting the $420 million 
Lake Simcoe economy at risk, it 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 really doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all. Um, no, I mean we would be like there are people on many who come to this conversation about the Bradford bypass from many different perspectives, and I'm not. I again, I'm not a traffic engineer. I don't build highways. Like I, I don't actually know what the right answer is. But here, let's talk about what is the problem. The problem, okay. An environmental assessment is supposed to identify problem and look at a number of solutions that could solve that problem, and then choose the one that is the most efficient overall. They have to look at, you know, environmental, social, and economic criteria, et cetera. The problem that this highway is supposed to fix is uh, travel. Now, the Ministry of Transportation originally is responsible for transportation between MCO highways. Okay, so that maybe back in the 70s or in the 90s, just like a freeway that connects one highway to another highway. Okay, that's kind of what we did then. Um, there are countries all over the world that are saying we're not building any more highways because we know that highways just create more traffic, right? So way to go, Ontario, way to go completely the wrong direction right now. Um, so since the original conception of this idea, Bradford itself has grown enormously. East Willembury, just to the east of Bradford, and Bradford are the two fastest growing municipalities in Ontario in recent years. That uh, in Bradford, they've they've reined in the sprawl recently, which is good. But East Willowbury is like like the the mayor there. She's like the queen of sprawl. Uh, it is nuts. Like they're just like let's use a hundred percent of our white belt lands. Anyway, uh, that's a whole other conversation. But their population is projected to grow by four hundred percent by twenty thirty one. So that is the highest rate of growth of, of any municipality. So what what is the what was the original problem? Connecting highway to highway traffic. Now the problem is sprawl and and all of the development, right? And all these people who live in communities that don't have transit. Uh, and they live in communities that are at such low densities that transit isn't going to work, okay? So it is a problem that we are actually creating. So... I think it would be smarter to stop creating that problem and to increase the density in the existing towns and communities that we have to focus on building more affordable housing, walk-up apartments, rentals, using those empty lots in our towns and cities where we already have infrastructure that we have already paid for instead of wasting taxpayer dollars to extend infrastructure to new towns that have no transit and that following today's low density planning environment uh, will never really have the density that would make transit viable. So the problem that this highway is now trying to fix is basically commuter traffic at, at peak times. Um, we think that it's entirely possible that by increasing some investments in transit and increasing some investments in regional roads, uh, the regional road infrastructure between Highway 400 and 404, uh, it exists, but it could be better. And some of those improvements over the last 20 years have made traffic better in the area. It probably makes a lot more sense to continue doing that and uh, invest in transit rather than spending, you know, what the Auditor General has said could be 
four billion dollars on the highway. The, the the province has never said anything more than eight hundred million, even though they knew it was nowhere near eight hundred million. Um, right. So we just want the government to actually do what only governments can do, which is look at the problem, analyze the situation, and come up with the most efficient solution to that problem. I imagine most people are not that interested in just forking over their tax dollars to an irresponsible government that cannot, in fact, defend the expenditures, especially when we know that this kind of massive expenditure is also going to result in worsening uh, water quality at Lake Simcoe, which which we all love. But there's just no sense in that. Absolutely. If you're worsening water quality at Lake Simcoe, the cottagers, the people, if you can't go swimming, if you can't go fishing, if you can't go boating, um, this could, and you think about all the jobs that rely on recreation in the Lake Simcoe area, all of the contractors, all the small businesses, the restaurants, the fishing guide services, um, you can't gamble that because that is Lake Simcoe. That is the entire Lake Simcoe economy. If you're looking at it from the economic lens, it's uh, it's it's a giant gamble. Now, why not? Why aren't we using sand? What's up with all this salt? My mother lives up near Perry Sound, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I would like to hear your, you know, your your uh, your thoughts on this. She lives up near Perry Sound, and they use all sand up there. Why not use sand in and around Lake Simcoe? So, I lived um, in Innisfil for four years for. Um, Anyway, that was kind of a fun, like, you know, rural, rural living story. Um, we had uh, spent a lot of time in Alcona, excuse me, and it was like a dust bowl. Um, it was, they were digging up the road to remove, anyway, it's a long story. It was insane. But yeah, there's a lot of dust. There's a lot of dust. So what happens is all that sand ends up just on the road. And then in the spring, they have to clean up the sand. So you have these street cleaners going around, vacuuming up the dust. Uh, it also gets into the stormwater systems. So uh, maybe in the areas that you're talking about, there aren't pipes. Like there isn't some piped infrastructure underground. In places like that, the salt is, or sorry, the sand is... Uh, less of a problem but where you have piped infrastructure and the sand gets into it it well you know sandpaper hello <laughs> it, it runs at the metal and it wears things down and so i'm under i've understood from municipalities that there are negative impacts of uh of sand as well so really i think the solutions that we most sort of efficiently can point to are use less salt, use salt alternatives, uh, especially very close to the lake, um, and stop building such an extensive road network, aka stop sprawl. Like it's there's a direct relationship between the size of your road network and the amount of salt that's used. So Salt is not that expensive. That's part of why uh, municipalities like to use it. They have, I mean, there's guidance. They've been using best practices. They've been experimenting with different alternatives, you know, using a salt brine instead of salt. All of these things help. But I, I do want to say thanks for trying 
it's not really working. Um, it's not enough. So we're uh, we're trying to pull together some people uh, and some organizations to try to work more on what do we do about the salt problem that we have, not just at Lake Simcoe, but in many other water bodies in Southern Ontario. Um, we're just exploring that a bit more. What can we do? What does the law say? What are the alternatives? What do they do in New Hampshire? You know, one of the problems is like people slip and fall in uh, parking lots. So wear sensible shoes, people. Just wear sensible shoes in the winter. My God. Like, are we going to ruin our lakes so that people can wear flip-flops and heels to walk across a Walmart parking lot? I hope not. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, ne next next time you're talking to city employees, you know, engineers, planners or whatever, try to push back on them on the salt thing from this angle, because I have heard that salt doesn't work beneath minus seven degrees Celsius. So the reason in once you basically get into central Ontario, including in places like, you know, Winnipeg, Calgary, uh, Edmonton, in all of these places, they use sand because salt doesn't work right in these super cold places. When it's minus 20 outside, salt does nothing. So in southern Ontario, we're in this uh, situation where the majority of the time it is not minus 20 and, uh, you know, salt is very effective. But I, I am interested to know is like the people who are telling you we can't use sand because it's abrasive in the pipes. Is that really true? How true is that? Because, again, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, they use sand and they got they got pipes up there. So I'd be really interested to hear, you know, you pushing back on these people that are telling you this, um, because maybe sand is a solution. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, there's some hybrids or maybe it's even a 50 50 sand, 50 salt you know, sure. a situation, but that, that could be, that could be really interesting. Um, yeah. what is the deal with Carolyn Mulrooney and how supportive is she? Because not only is, I believe she the MPP for a big chunk of the Lake Simcoe area, but, uh, she's also the minister of transportation. So what does she have to say about all this? Does she realize she's gambling the entire economy and society and environment of Lake Simcoe on this highway uh bradford bypass thing does she realize this question james if anybody could reach her or if, well, let's say if she would respond we might have an answer to that so you might remember in the run-up to the last provincial election uh there were lots of debates and the mpps the sitting mpps who were running for re-election categorically did not show up at those debates. Fast forward, uh, I, you know, it's my job to talk to Lake Simcoe MPPs. And when this government was first elected, I did. I met with all of them. I talked to all of them. They're like, let's get to work. Let's save Lake Simcoe. And then we clearly got their marching orders. And it was like, no, 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 no. We are not saving the environment. We are doing favors for developers. So they all shut up and they stopped talking to anybody like me anybody who runs an environmental organization like it is it is infuriating so they most of them ran on a campaign or when asked do you love lake Sunco and are you going to do something for lake Sunco?" they're like of course yes we love the environment um unfortunately government policy now is taking us so far back 
in time to a time when we had really poor environmental protections. So Carolyn Mulroney is an MPP and a cabinet minister uh, for York Simcoe. Yes, that's a large portion of the Lake Simcoe watershed. She knows this. She is one of the people who voted for, uh, you know, removal from the Greenbelt, for example. And cabinet should know, should ask questions, and should understand the implications of the policy changes that they're making. I think what we're seeing right now is that cabinet has been really delinquent in doing their job of protecting Ontarians from really bad decisions. I mean, like some all the stuff we talked about, you know, bad things happen if you don't take care. My point is we need to take really good care of the environment and we can't make bad decisions. And we rely on government and their really fat salaries to do the right thing, right? To actually protect us. And so I'm super frustrated with Carolyn Mulroney um, because she stopped um, she stopped meeting with me. She stopped listening to environmental advocates. And clearly we're seeing right now that cabinet has just not done their their job. So then I was like, well, look, she's had like a skating party up in, uh, up in Georgina. So I called my friends from Georgina. I put on a green scarf for the green belt, did my skates, got my little boys, brought my whole family to Georgina to go to her skating party so that I could skate up beside her and go, hi, Carolyn. She's like, oh, hi. Because she knows that I'm like, right? So I'm being really nice. And I was like, I've been really trying hard to get a meeting with you because we need to talk about how you're going to help protect like some go like King Bronze. And I'm not getting anywhere. And so she's like, oh, and then I am, I still haven't had this meeting. It's been like a year, a year and a half. I wrote an op-ed about it. I'm like, I have made multiple phone calls. No. No. They're just not there. They're just not listening. So, you know, it's not like, I, I don't care what government is working in Ontario. I really don't. Uh, I just want them to do their job. So I think people need to know that. If you think the government of Ontario is protecting the environment right now, it, it, they're they're not. And the Lake Sequoia MPPs that are um, supporting, you know, reducing the powers of conservation authorities, uh, eliminating density targets, eliminating the growth plan, uh, getting rid of the natural heritage system, which we had worked on and which taxpayers have paid for, uh, municipal, regional, and provincial people have worked a ton of time, tons of money to create a natural heritage system with a growth plan. The government is going to throw that in the garbage. Like just the number of examples are just are just endless. Um, I should say, I think it's really awesome that so many people are vocal in their love of Lake Simcoe. And I think that the reason Lake Simcoe has actually got uh, a couple of really good outcomes from this government that I should point to, which I have, which is the redirection of the Upper York sewage system and the building of this phosphorus reduction plant on the Holland River. Those are those are two things that this current conservative government have said that they would do and would pay for. Those are good things, okay? I think we got those things because a lot of voters around Lake Simcoe have been very clear with their MPPs that they love Lake Simcoe and that they expect their MPPs to protect it. So well done, all the people who do that. Uh, if you're somebody who loves Lake Simcoe and you haven't yet reached out to your MPP, 
please do that. There's a take action section on our website, uh, rescuelakesimco.org, where you can find um, some actions. You know, we're doing a phone zap actually on um, the 21st of September. So we get together online. We say, here are the numbers that you can call. Here are some points you can make. And then we all mute ourselves and then we make our phone calls and then we come back together and we kind of debrief about it. So we're doing this in the evening um, so that anybody can join. It's, you know, after hours for most people's work days. And that's a, it's just an example of the kind of thing that we can do together to help encourage people to do what they can uh, to encourage our MPPs to, to do their jobs. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. I, yeah, I'm about to, to to have you give shout outs in terms of all your platforms, you know, where you want to, to send people who want to help out with what you're doing. And it's such a universal message, you know, especially in the Lake Simcoe area, because it really is a recreation. Again, if you want to come back to the bloodthirsty capitalist perspective of, you know, it's all about the economy, the whole economy it's 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 the wealth and also the health of everyone in that whole region depends on the health of Lake Simcoe. So it's really, really critical. This is this is not a, you know, liberal versus conservative versus Green Party kind of thing. You know, it's it's super important for everyone. And just an idea that I kind of, I'll kind of leave you with. You're obviously a master Jedi at this, but you've been doing this for such a long time. I have been on Wild Ontario basically over the past two months. You know, I've been trying to build this community that brings as broad an audience together as possible for conservation in Ontario. And, you know, I'm an ex-vegan. Now I'm a hunter and a fisherman. I've been into bird watching. I've been into camping. I've been into like totally uninterested in the environment and just interested in downtown Toronto, all these different phases throughout my life. And all throughout those, I've kind of realized, I'm like, listen, I've always kind of cared about conservation and wildlife and all this kind of stuff in all these different phases. So why not try to bring all these people together? And it's so weird because like in the comments on my videos, I've got like vegans and hunters arguing, but they're both they're both following me. You know what I mean? Yeah, good for you. That, 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 that I'm putting out. So one idea that I'm trying to share with people is that, um, you know, sometimes I think like environmental organizations can get siloed away from some of the broader, not a broader audience, but for example, maybe like outdoors people. You know, I see like in Lake Simcoe, the outdoors people, I think, would be very conducive to the uh, message that you are delivering. There was even an article in Ontario Out of Doors magazine, which is the biggest kind of outdoors magazine in Ontario, about Lake Simcoe and the Bradford Bypass a few months ago. And I was like, right on, guys, like you should be hammering on this because so many people I know go fishing all the time in Lake Simcoe. You know what I mean? So that's just a that's just a germ of an idea for you there. You probably already doing, uh, you know, stuff like this. And uh, maybe that, um, you know, because maybe if, you know, Carolyn Mulrooney, it's you and the head of like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters that are showing up at her office together. Maybe she's like, well, holy shit. It's like both yeah. these people together. That's crazy. Because really, like, you know, as an outdoorsman myself now, most outdoorsmen are environmentalists. They just for sure have a different tact sometimes, you know, but uh but anyways, that's just a random idea for you. Um, no, it's, it's actually, no, it's 100% what we're trying to do. Uh, and, you know, we just don't have a you being me. Like, I'm just me, you know, and I I, I, uh, I just don't have the same appeal maybe for 
um, the hunting and fishing community that that you do. But I really appreciate that. I mean, we've definitely been making friendships and relationships with more people who, uh, for example, run ice fishing businesses. So that our messaging, where, as you say, where messaging is shared and is the same, the message is delivered by people um, who are not, you know, who don't have a master's in environmental planning in the Lake Simcoe Protection Plan, like me being the nerd that I am, but rather, you know, just like a fishing guy, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's tons of, there's tons of overlap between uh, what environmentalists want and what outdoors people want. I think it is really important that we forget about partisanship here and uh, and not assume that all environmentalists are of one or the other political stripe. Um, and just focus on the things that we value and that we share a love of and just focus on that, right? Like tell your government that you want them to, to protect the environment and, you know, don't believe all the hype. Like, it's not like if you're a conservative, you have to love bad ideas. No, like a lot of conservatives are really, really upset with the government of Ontario right now because they keep pushing these bad ideas, um, really expensive and environmentally damaging ideas. I mean, conservative contains the word conservation and conserve, right? And that is a fundamental principle of First Nations philosophy. I mean, where do you put that on the spectrum? Is that left, right? Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we have a planet to save. And so I think it's really important that people just break down these silos. Um, you know, we've been trying to do a better job of that. But I think this podcast and connecting with you is uh, really a great step on that journey. So I really appreciate your help. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Clara Malcolmson. And, you know, I would classify you as a wild Ontario legend because you've been at this for 20 years and you're on, you're on the front lines, literally carrying the stone on your back for Lake Simcoe. Your work is so appreciated. I, I have to tell you that. And uh, just remember, it's like there's so many people out there, I think, rooting for you. And even if they don't know about you, they would appreciate your existence so, 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 so much. You know, your existence on planet Earth, you're literally making the Earth a better place. It would be a worse place if you weren't here. So thank you so much. And uh, is there any place you want to send people like Instagram, your website, any particular petitions uh, out there right now you want to direct people towards? Well, yeah, um, I would like to put a shout out to our website volunteer, Sabrina Rhodes, uh, who's actually just updated our homepage with a really nice little video that describes who we are and what we do. Uh, and then there is a take action link as well. And on our take action link right now, we have a few things. So one is a petition about the Bradford bypass. Another is an action related to, you know, call your counselor if you're in the Lake Simcoe watershed to encourage your counselor to support a motion about the Bradford bypass that actually goes to this whole conversation we had, like just release the traffic studies and provide value for money audit, et cetera. Um, as I said on uh, Tuesday, the 21st, I think. We are going to have a phone zap about the about the green belt. Um, so, so it's Thursday, the twenty first of September. And um, so, all those things you can find on our website, which is rescuelakesimco.org. and you can just click on the take action uh, link to find all the actions. 
And we are, of course, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And um, you can find a whole bunch of little videos about the Bradford Bypass there as well. Uh, we did some town halls in the spring and Jim Brody made some videos for us. And so those are out now. A uh, really good way to to just get a quick info hit about one or another crazy idea related to the Bradford Bypass. That's awesome. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Claire. And good luck fighting out there. And uh, yeah, hopefully talk again soon. Well, hopefully we'll have you on again in the future if there's any big updates about Lake Simcoe that you want that you want to talk about. Thank you so much for listening to the Wild Ontario podcast. Uh, please follow us on TikTok and Instagram uh, at uh, Wild Ontario News. And then, you know, uh, so please subscribe as well to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on YouTube and leave a five-star review. Thank you so much, everyone. May the gods bless you, you wild Ontarians.